Day 1FM. It is a smoky day in New York, thanks to our neighbors from the north. Very hazy. Mm. Yeah. So Tasting hazy. notes of burnt oak, yeah. <laughs> I think. Um, Burning acres. Yeah. We just barely made it into the office today, but we had to. And the reason we had to is because... It's a special day in Day One FM history. We're recording live from our New York studio. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. Our producer is in the room with us. Actually, monumental. So, a big shout out to Cole, Jared, Jock, the whole ops team for uh, putting this together. I feel like the mics may make us sound smarter. I feel that way, mm, but yeah. the presence. Yeah. Yeah. I feel so much more grounded. I would say, yeah. definitely. Anyway, we do, again, have an agenda today, believe it or not. We're not just rambling here. Um, So three things. Three things we're going to discuss today. The first is the fallout from Hannah Gadsby's It's Problematic exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum. Uh, Then we are going to talk on the, quote, coming pro-smoking discourse, no pun intended, And then finally, uh, lots of news coming out of the cable news industry. We're going to talk Chris Licht, some updates there. So to kick it off, Clara, I know you have some strong opinions on this. First, what is problematic and what's problematic about it? Fill us in, please. I'm going to try to do this as quickly and clearly as possible. Please, let's fast forward to this part. Yeah. But in any case... So are you guys familiar at all with Hannah Gadsby? Unfortunately. Yeah. Did you watch the special? Absolutely not. Yeah, I didn't. I I, like honestly, I didn't really know that much of who she was prior to this. But basically, she's an Australian stand up comedian. And I think within the Netflix special, which had come out a couple of years ago, maybe one year ago, she has this bit about Pablo Picasso and how he's problematic. Um, One thing leads to another. She's curated this exhibit. Um, at the Brooklyn Museum, it's currently on called Pablo-matic, which basically brings together some of Pablo Picasso's work with work by female artists with these kind of very like quippy artist statements written, I think, by her and her team that go up next to all of the work. And a lot of the criticism that's come out about it, both from like art critics and from, you know, the New York pundits at large, is basically just talking about how the show itself is kind of like an amalgamation of like digital culture kind of gone awry, like a very specific type of, you know, discourse that actually ends up doing more to tarnish the reputations of the female artists who are included in the (laughs) exhibition than actually, you know, like make any type of interesting point about, you know, maybe some of Pablo Picasso's biography and like aspects of his life that were troubling. Um, and it just seems to be the type of thing that's very much like made to be memed, made to be consumed. And there's tweets that are funnier than I am about to this effect. <laughs> um, but I'm curious either of you to the extent that you've like paid attention at all to this. Cause I know like Colleen and Elise, some other members on our team and I have been chatting about it pretty consistently. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was, I don't pay attention to art news per se, and I I saw at least and read at least two reviews of the Brooklyn Museum show um, that were completely eviscerating her, essentially, and wondering how these two curators, who I guess helped co-curate it with her, uh, basically allowed her to like run free through <laughs> the wasn't, museum. Wasn't it also funded by the Sacklers? Well, it's in the feminist, or maybe it's not called feminist, but it's in the such and such Sackler women's art wing, which is already, mm. you know, 
problematic. Yeah. But yeah. interesting. I just thought it was so funny. There was the the audio guide, I guess. She nicknames Pablo Picasso PP. And there's a lot of like crude PP jokes in the audio guide, which I think should give everyone a, you know, insight into Hannah Gadsby's style of humor. Yeah. Um, and I, I was actually struggling to describe it because Eli and I did a bit of a test run of the podcast yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know quite what to call it, but it gives me kind of like a, I don't know, like Twitter, like, I don't know. How would you describe it? Well, but it's not. the So a lot of the criticism, well, doesn't stem from this piece, but the one article that has been kind of circulated online outside of the Twitter discourse is from the New York Times art critic Jason Farrago. I might not be pronouncing that uh, correctly, but he likens it to uh, social justice-themed pop culture. Um, So, uh, I mean, is that kind of in line with what you were getting at? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think so to the extent that... And now this sounds... Sorry, not to... I I don't want this to sound like... Come across sounding like a Daily Wire podcast, but... um, it's kind of like more more in the performative elements than, you know, actually kind of speaking to any type of female cubist or something along those lines, right? Yeah, well, basically, and like I think his point a little bit later is like there's so much to actually engage with on Pablo Picasso. And also important to note, I think this year is like an important anniversary. 50th. 50th. Okay, yeah. So of there's been death. like yeah. his death, an important anniversary. <laughs> but anyways, um, there's been so like the New York Times actually did like a really thoughtful piece where like 10 artists weigh in on his legacy and, you know, artists from very diverse backgrounds in terms of like art practice, but also sort of identity. Um, and there is a lot to like very meaningfully engage with and critique. But I think his point about sort of like the social justice theme is that it doesn't actually do any of those things. Like it's very performative, this problematic show. Right. But in a way that's kind of like, I don't know, it's made to be a gif or it's made to be sort of just like a photo that you like add to your story of like, oh, haha, isn't this like pee pee joke so funny? Yeah. But it's like when you bring that type of thing to in art world context, it's like maybe it flies on Netflix and like, oh, you like you this gets picked up by, you know, the right type of person with the right it's type like of humor. Magnet but it's like humor. Exactly. It's I and read like you one bring the, that to this. Like I wanna read one of the, the um, smoke. It's the smoke inhalation. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I wanna read one of the quotes because uh, Hannah inserts herself into the show by I guess blowing up large quotes from her. Um, all over the exhibition. And again, disclaimer, I've not seen it, but one of them, uh, there's a Picasso print of a nude woman caressing a sculpture of a naked chiseled man. And the accompanying text from Hannah Gadsby goes, don't you hate it when you look like you belong in a Dickens novel, but end up in a mosh pit at Burning Man? Hashtag me too. Yeah. See, that's (laughs) what I'm saying is like, you don't, and it's again, I I don't want to be put in the position also of like, defending Pablo Picasso against criticism. But I think like to your point, or at least like that example, it's like you're making fun of people who do try to have, I don't know, meaningful conversations. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that also comes up in this New York Times piece is that like there actually are female artists who have done really cool work that's like inspired or like whatever by Picasso. Um, And to kind of like throw them all in this gallery with him with these like, sort of fridge magnet jokes 
devalues their yeah, work a lot and, and that they're in a more vulnerable as, position right, compared to him. Reframes it as them agreeing with her communications yeah. like style, I guess, against Picasso. I don't know. Yeah. I would be annoyed if my podcast words were taken out of context and used for someone else's agenda. But they're not to Brooklyn Museum. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I guess like on a closing note on this conversational thing, I guess I'm curious on both of your takes on one of the points from the New York Times piece is about, you know, when digital culture meets, you know, IRL culture. But I think like more in this case, like when digital culture meets, you know, institutions and concepts that are like a little bit more complicated than a tweet and how these types of things can go wrong. I feel like in terms of our work and what we do is kind of what I was thinking about. Like I know like I'm gonna maybe pronounce this brand name wrong, but like Shishido is partnering with the Met this year to try and like bring more young people to the galleries. And like I know that a lot of museums Sorry, I'm just smiling because those are the Is it not Shishido? (laughs) Are you sure that's not the Shiseido. Shiseido. Oh my gosh. Well so Shiseido is partnering with the Met. (laughs) But I am curious like as museums try to maybe either resonate with a younger audience or reach a different audience, like the good, the bad and the ugly of this. I feel like this is very much the ugly, but just to the extent that that's on either of your minds well yeah i just think whenever you are trying to make some kind of statement that resonates with an audience if you don't if you insert yourself into that conversation or try to make light of it or add an extra layer onto it the actual message gets lost and when the like the subject is so complex such as this case you know it just there's you have to unpeel back so many layers so I think it's always better to just say your message and kind of shrink away into the background to let that message come across. But instead, Hannah Gadsby can't help but like be the main character. Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately, we are, for better or for worse, stuck with her fridge magnets, probably sold in the Brooklyn Museum <laughs> <laughs> uh, shop on the way out. Tragic. Yeah. All right. It's good thoughts. Thanks, thoughts. Eli. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, I was, I you know, at first a little. We should have an Eli stamp of approval on thoughts sound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, approved. <laughs> approved by yeah. Eli. <laughs> I, you know, I was at first a little hesitant, and then I spent some time reading, and you know, fell in line. Fell in line. Yeah, yeah. it's an interesting yeah. story. Yeah. All right. Well, on the theme of smoky skies, um, I want to talk about a. Recent Substack piece from Max Reed. Is it Max Reed or Max Red? I think it's up for debate. Okay. Could go either way. Who knows? Uh, titled The Pro-Smoking Discourse. And um, first, a disclaimer. This is not medical advice. Day One <laughs> FM does in no way, shape, or form aim to endorse or promote smoking tobacco or any nicotine products for that matter. Um, but <laughs> kind of the, the groundwork for this piece is sparked, no pun intended, by a recent pop video of Gen Z's fave, Jenna Ortega, ripping a heater. Have you guys seen this no. video? Yeah. Well, she's like talking to someone outside of like a building or something. Yeah. 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 And this, of course, you know, kicked off a debate about, you know, the pros and cons, whether or not it's good or bad that she smokes. And, <laughs> and obviously bad, obviously bad. Um, but overwhelmingly, or potentially overwhelmingly, at least the the tweets that did the most numbers or the um, you know posts that did the most numbers were kind of overwhelmingly of the pro, at least you know kind of shit posting pro variety. Um, 
I should note that I think I saw a piece about Jenna Ortega's mom doing like a public <laughs> yes. PSA. I was just Can looking you talk at about these that photos. So after Jenna Ortega, famously known for her role in Wednesday, the Netflix series, um, Jenna's mom posted on her Instagram story all these hilarious like screenshots of articles that say like, does smoking help you relax? No, smoking <laughs> does not help you relax. Cigarette stench. Quitting gets rid of the lingering smell of tobacco in your breath. And all the people are like reposting it saying, um, Latina moms are ruthless as F. Uh, so I think that's kind of funny. A mother is always a mother. She never stops worrying about her children. <laughs> Natalie Ortega. Listen, I, I mean, my mom, rightly so, would be doing the exact same. Although I don't know if she she can't download a PDF. If you're listening to this, I'm sorry, mom. But getting the green TikTok green screen to work would take a long time. Um, but anyway, the crux on the piece, the crux, excuse me, of his piece hinges on four main points. Um, one, and this is, you know, not him necessarily advocating, it's just him, what he's kind of seeing in the landscape. One, nicotine is a creative and intellectual stimulant in an age of, quote, mid-cultural production. I think what he's talking about here is mid-cultural production, obviously kind of, you know, maybe perhaps the dominance of Marvel Cinematic Universe, of reboots, of remakes, there's kind of a lack of original ideas and kind of mid-content proliferating across TikTok uh, or social platforms as a whole. And then he he ties this back to a bunch of other kind of authors and cultural commentators who have historically made this, you know, weak argument, if we're going to be honest. Tucker Carlson, I should add, has had some similar commentary on this, but no one's going to listen to that monster. Um, <laughs> the next smoking... But I digress. <laughs> Wait, yeah. what, what is the take? <laughs> What is the Tucker take? Or no, what is the take that Tucker makes and this guy makes? Uh, the take that Tucker makes and that other authors have made, I'm going to have to, you, we'll put it in the show notes, is that nicotine is like a creative stimulant and an oh. enhancer. It's kind of like a write on, write on wine, edit on coffee type of thing. <laughs> are, you, are you calling it a wonder drug? <laughs> no, no, no. But historically, some would say, mm, some would say. Mm. Um, the next is like the, the social activity involved. So smoking as like a, a social, um, you know, bringing people together. You can't really do it behind a screen or vaping is even in the privacy of our own, our own homes. Um, that before I write the deck. Exactly. Just like in the stairwell, like, <laughs> I know, I know. Well, you, you know, and then back, speaking of elf bar, dare I say there's a nostalgic element here, some would say. Yeah, I, I've seen, you know, anecdotally smoking coming back a lot, starting with the New York Times article <laughs> mm -hmm. right. from last year. But I, I appreciated this piece because on the face of it, it's something that I feel like you would see maybe in like a Times style headline and be like, what is this? Like, this is another like Americans are obsessed with Europe core this summer, like something that just seems like such a broken brained right. take and like. There are all yeah. these kind of trends now that exist in vacuums, like we've talked about, Clara, whatever string cheese girl is, tomato girl, mm -hmm. kind of like damp lifestyle. And I appreciate- Soft hiking. Soft, soft hiking. hiking. Or so what is it? Soft walking. Soft hiking. I think it's soft hiking, Where, but it's just walking. Yeah. weird girl walks. Yeah. <laughs> but there's, so there's many examples. There's the New York Times article. There's this Max Reed article. There's the rise of Hestia. There's the- you know, what else? Podcasters well, smoking. I, I mean, yeah, I guess yeah. what I'm trying to say is that as kind of outlandish as it seems on the face of it, I appreciate that it 
was backed up by historical context and kind of a dive into the who and the what and the tensions of it all, which is like kind of the the like DNA or like what you need to kind of say that this is quote happening in culture versus just like willing it into thin air based off of like a few TikToks, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I guess as a question, like do you guys, I guess, A, feel that cigarettes are back in terms of they were at one point gone? Mm -hmm. And B, like what do you think the reason is? Like do you agree with the max reasons or do you have your own? I My theory is that they – <clears throat> Sorry, <clears throat> that's really smoky today. I... <laughs> My theory is that they are back, uh, but only among a certain demographic. I really do think that like there is a weird millennial Gen Z cutoff when it comes to smoking. I don't really know a whole lot of millennials who smoke. And I do know a lot of Gen Z people who either vape or are trying to quit vaping and maybe have returned to traditional smoking. Um <laughs> Also wanted to mention recently in Canada, um, they're branding cigarettes individually with um, anti-smoking lingo, basically, that's printed on each individual cigarette to kind of dissuade people from smoking, um, which ironically kind of backfired and was <laughs> sort of memed on social media as being like, they used this cool font and it's making cigarettes even look more cool to smoke. So yeah. um, I think that a lot of kind of things are um, rising to the surface in terms of the smoking discourse. But Indeed. I do think that like there, I don't know, this is a, okay, this is a crazy theory perhaps, but we are missing as a culture, our water cooler moment. You know, mm. there's no real reason now as like Gen Z is clearly apparently sober as a generation to go outside to meet people and interact in non-awkward ways without pulling out your cell phone. And as we know, I think, you know, this is like sweeping statements, but Gen Z is trying to get away more from social media and cell phone use and trying to find ways to interact with each other that isn't from behind a screen. So I think that that action of smoking or taking up cigarettes naturally lends itself to making new friends. You know, I think there's <laughs> plenty of evidence for how many new friends you make in the, you know, outdoor smoking area. So yeah, yeah. That, I think, that's my theory. I think that's interesting though. Like the sort of cigarettes as your door to a third space concept, <laughs> you know what I mean? The if liminal we, space. Uh, the yeah. liminal space. But I think like, you know, we've talked about it even with like the diet Coke break. Like I guess the, the trade take on that was that like, oh, diet Coke breaks are the new Gen Z smoke break. Wait, that was can before you, these articles came out. But Right. Can you, you explain know? that again, just because yeah. we might have missed it. So hashtag diet Coke break was like, like a TikTok trend basically yeah. where it was like, People being like me and my bestie, like when I slack her, like, oh, do you want a Diet Coke? And then some people would sort of like follow, like get ready with us to go leave the office to grab a Diet Coke. And I think there's a lot that you can kind of take away from that, both like Gen Z is returning to the office and like how are they whatever sort of contending with that, like taking, like you're saying, like finding these spaces to chat with people, like what is the water cooler conversation? Where does it happen for Gen Z? But I think you're also right, Trey, and that like 
maybe there is kind of a, a part of cigarette smoking that gives you the sense of like community or like if I feel awkward here at this party, I can always just like go outside and smoke a cigarette. And even if I do it by myself, it doesn't look weird. You know what I mean? Wait, I just found this article. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so new UMass Chan study finds smoking rates increased during the pandemic looks at related stresses. So essentially... A study led by Rajani S., I'm not going to try and say his name, PhD, found that the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic saw a net increase in smoking rates among a group of people who had previously participated in a study to quit smoking. Interesting. So they've taken smoking back up, probably due to all the related stresses from the pandemic. I mean, I think the third space piece is interesting. And again, Day 1 FM is in no way, shape, or form condoning the... uh, ingestion of nicotine products uh however folks and now are doing for our sponsor yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, David Slay. but I, I do think i do think the third space the kind of social aspect of it is interesting i think that the like contrarian take is always i feel like a lot of the times the the popular take these days somewhat mm-hmm. there's a big kind of anti-expert anti-science movement happening at least on some fringe corners online and like the new masculine um role models such as kind of andrew tate you have the kind of these like alt alt weirdos i guess i would describe them as who you know would kind of embrace this um viewpoint on something that has as we all know deadly but i guess it's interesting because like i agree with you like i <laughs> I'm sure, like, maybe Andrew Tate would be pro, but then, like, the Red Scare girlies are pro. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. But I think, I think they cigarettes... fall one way into the other in that there's a Venn diagram yeah. where they coexist. I guess my point, though, overall, and, like, what I think is interesting with them is that I don't think that cigarettes are, like, part of any particular scene. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that, like, if you were to go outside and, like, see somebody smoking a cigarette like a Gen Z person, it doesn't necessarily signal like, oh, that person is in this X, Y, Z thing. I don't Maybe just because we work right across from FIT. But but I guess I'm saying, but like FIT kids (laughs) themselves are not akin to Andrew Tate followers. You know what I mean? Like, I think that to Trey's point, like, I think this was a pretty broad cultural moment where a bunch of people found themselves like at home, bored, stressed, whatever, either took up smoking then or at least imbued them with enough, like, live every day like it's your last, that they, like, picked up cigarettes. Because, like, why not? And it looks cool, which is, like, Max Reed brings that up, too. Like, Mm. cigarettes, I think, are, unfortunately, it's, like, dating a terrible guy. Like, it's hot. (laughs) It's, like, it's fun, you know? Well, I think it's less about, like, everyone who follows Andrew Tate is, like, you know, picking up a pack of Marble hundreds. It's more of, like, this is a person who espouses views that run flagrantly contrary to kind of the mainstream narrative around certain products and ideals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is perhaps a stretch to say that <laughs> therefore, but I think, you know, that is an important component of the article of the piece. There's also like an underlying current of, you know, over decades of Hollywood films that have romanticized smoking and like yeah. the flick of a lighter and the initial whatever what you call it wheeze i don't know um versus like the crackle yeah versus like the absolute you know lameness of how vaping looks and people sucking on yeah. fake usb sticks and giant like 
tube things that yeah. you know the La- raspberry cloud of mm-hmm. smoke comes and attacks you when you walk behind them last yeah. point on this there's a last in- wheeze <laughs> there was an interesting piece Eli's i gotta put wheeze. this out there is an interesting piece in vox a couple weeks ago about the like um how fandom and fan culture got very puritan in nature and how mm. there's a lot of people particularly in younger core younger younger sections and corners of the internet and kind of fan sites and chat boards etc who go around kind of policing certain behavior or are you know somewhat allergic to seeing sex on screen or something and kind of equate that with potential real world harm so i think there's a there's a an aversion to this kind of safetyism that i think a lot of folks feel uh, is part of their everyday experience online. Um, yeah. I also think, though, and I'm curious how you guys feel. Like, we've talked a little bit about, like, vice as a category, mm-hmm. like, the return to vice. And I think, to your point, too, about fandom, I think, like, certain forms of entertainment have become super sanitized. Like, yeah. there was that piece, like, everyone's hot and no one's horny. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys read it, but it's basically, <laughs> it's about, like, Marvel movies and, like, mm-hmm on-screen romance in general. And I think, like, Terry Nguyen from Dirt had Body Heat on the list as, like, one of her, like, movies to watch. (laughs) But basically talking about how, like, there is a sense that, like, culture has been so sanitized. And I think even, like, with something like The Idol, like, it's, like, kind of very graphic, but it's devoid of any real sense of, like, romance or, like, true interest. You know what I mean? And so I think, like... swung too far in the other direction. Yeah, where I'm curious to see, like, and... You know, maybe this is a discourse for sometime soon, but just like where the cigarette stuff factors in with other shifts that I hope do sort of happen culturally in terms the of vibe like shift taking us out of this <laughs> mid period and into yeah. something more like well, it's not sparking any creativity. I can yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> At least so far. Uh, mm-hmm. All right, moving on. When I was writing my show notes, Chris Licht was the CEO of CNN, and as I opened my computer this morning to finish them, he was not. Uh, I don't know if you guys have... uh, Sunrise, sunset. (laughs) Sunset. I don't know if you guys have been closely following this story at all. All their hopes are pinned now on Caitlin Connell. (laughs) I've not been following it, so feel free to recap. Okay, so... um, There's a a couple of different components. I will say that this is happening in the backdrop of a fairly turbulent and tumultuous time in cable news. There's a lot of big names who have left or been fired from their respective channels or companies, Tucker Carlson, Don Lemon, um, which was a product of Chris Lick's um, tenure at CNN. But there was a recent piece in The Atlantic. It was more so a, a dissertation one could say, from Tim Alberta um, on Chris Licht. And he was granted really intimate access to the day-to-day, the ins and outs of Lick's life, both outside of the office and inside the office. He had sweet green with him. I wonder what his order was. What do you think? Oh, it didn't say in the piece? No, it didn't say in the piece. I feel wow. like he doesn't get warm. Journalistic bowls, oversight. You know what I, mean? he, yeah, <laughs> I feel he, like he's like a kale Caesar yeah. guy. You All know? right. Well, you don't even know the guy. I feel no. like he's <laughs> counting cows. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like uh, he's, like, yeah, he is, he's, he's in a so. calorie deficit. <laughs> he's like. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, anyway, so he, you know, kind of shadowed him as he did as, uh, 
daily trainings and workouts. He went to dinners with him. He had breakfast with him, mm -hmm. etc. And I think that he was granted all of this access in the hopes that, you know, I don't think it was, it's the Atlantic. I don't think it's going to be a fluff piece, but it would be, you know, talk about CNN and the work, the quote, great work that they're doing potentially. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And in the end, you know, it's fairly clear and obvious early on that he essentially just ethered Chris Licht. Like he kind of took a bat to the entire culture of the news um, behemoth, the business at large. Um, I don't know. I, I know I just rambled for a bit, but have you guys kind of read anything? Or Yeah, I was reading a here? lot of it. And I thought it was interesting that he came from previously the late show with Stephen Colbert. Yeah. Um, and obviously had pre previous success, I think, at CBS Morning Show. So his big kind of agenda at CNN was to create a morning show, um, which yeah. I think was basically his main downfall because nobody was watching that. Yeah, I think he didn't. I mean, there was a lot. I think he is a guy who came from like a production background and didn't necessarily have like the business chops, but even like his creative decisions on the production side kind of flopped a bit. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the morning show was a flop. They didn't really have a lead anchor per se. And I think he butted heads with Don Lemon. Don Lemon was eventually fired at CNN. Um, but I just think it comes at an interesting time when the whole news business as a whole, or the cable news at least, is kind of going through a bit of an identity crisis. Yeah. Um, and, you know, trying to think of a nonlinear future and, like, where do you go for digital? Where do you go for social? Apparently digital only makes up, like, 10% of CNN's ad spend. Mm -hmm. Just, like, you can't survive on cable news alone, I feel like, now. Well, yeah, it just kind of marks, or it maybe is, like... Uh, a paragon of this whole movement towards nonpartisan news and being more in the center. I think all news organizations historically want to appeal to a broad base of people, regardless of what your political beliefs are. And it's interesting. We've seen that with the messenger and the whole launch or rollout of that, um, kind of trying to cater more to this nonpartisan audience if that exists and same with semaphore and a lot of other outlets um, that have kind of popped up in the past couple months. And I think there is this big desire, especially for, well, those on the left and the right probably to read news that doesn't feel like tinged with opinion or, you know, so one-sided. But at the same point, I think that like everyone is already feeling so divisive that every little thing can be like triggering, I think. And so nonpartisan news just doesn't really work. Like you have to follow the audience. Yeah. Surely. Well, and I'm curious too. And I mean, this isn't an expert opinion, but like, what? It's a crazy, <laughs> I know, secret. Um, because I mean, I don't know. I have not been following the CNN thing super religiously, but I do think it's interesting to your point, Trey, that like you have cable news happening or this crisis happening at the same time as you have like a digital news crisis happening at the same time that you have Tucker Carlson, like going on Twitter with his show and like getting this massive audience, you know, but I do think you're totally correct in that, like from a digital standpoint, I guess we've been seeing a lot of like newer models that are sort of like more quote unquote objective, more quote unquote middle of the road. But I think there's like two questions on one side of like, is there a world that people are sort of tuning into cable news? And if so, what's drawing them there? And I think it's interesting, like looking at 
you know, Tucker Carlson, and I know like Don Lemon is no longer there, but just like in contrast to say the Drew Barrymore show, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like she just got this cover talking about how she like reinvigorated daytime, but mm -hmm. I think TV is so personality driven. And like, I just feel like recently TV channels that I've seen kind of have yet to bring up like what that next generation of TV hosts is. Right. You know what I mean? Like it feels like a talent deficit in the same way that like that article that I was referencing, like whatever that was a few weeks back was um, saying about Hollywood of the inability of major studios to like create their new blockbuster stars. Like CNN has not produced mm -hmm. that. Fox lost that. <laughs> I guess Rachel Maddow is still I on. Even, like, I don't even know if she's still on. Maybe she's not, you know, but like there isn't that type of star power, you know, that I don't yeah, see. It, I think least, that you know? all brands, regardless of whether you're a news brand or a digital media brand or just a other kind of brand, um, needs to figure out how to leverage parasocial relationships to yeah. get and keep an audience and harvest like a community and grow a community. Because regardless of like whether it is, you know, traditional media or news channel, and this is maybe a crazy idea, but if any, you know, CNN execs are listening out there, if you wanted, for example, a younger audience who you knew all followed a specific person on TikTok who had a very, you know, engaging magnetic personality, what's to stop you from kind of cultivating them into a star and platforming them um, and bringing that audience along with them? I know that it probably sounds crazy because like, you know, why give a job to somebody who's just on TikTok or something? But like you already have a highly engaged audience and a, you know, cult fan base. And I think if you made them into these big stars on traditional media channels, their audience would also revel and celebrate in that and be like, wow, this person I followed has made it to like the upper echelons of culture now. So in that sense, I think that like all these execs don't understand that creating that parasocial relationship is so important to winning over your audience. Yeah. And I feel like maybe we've spoken about this as well before, but it comes also in in terms of like investment and building, like you're saying, like taking someone who maybe is too small right now and turning them into something like changing how you mine for talent. Like mm -hmm. you're not looking to J schools anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. You're like looking at people who are already on TikTok, breaking down news the way that Gen Z cares about and listens to yeah. and shaping that into something that you can like franchise for TV. I just haven't seen it done successfully. Actually, the youngest person that I've seen on television is this girl that they have doing like the halftime show for the Washington Capitals now. It's and she's all sports. Great, it is but all But like sports. it's you you are getting like younger sports correspondents. But sports but not is somehow the only news. reason that cable TV still exists. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. That people are tuning in to live TV. And final point on this, it's like I think the part of Chris Lick's downfall and potentially for the future kind of news execs is that there's doesn't seem to be a vision for the future like built around kind of what you're saying Trey building parasocial relationships like looking to social etc and like doing things in kind of a a platform first way but Gen Z and younger generations aren't tuning in to like primetime news, right? They're they're scrolling and coming across whatever is on their feed that's either algorithmically served to them or from someone that they're following. Um, so I think just like, again, kind of building, building trust and building communities on those specific platforms with those individuals. Because I think 
what is news is amorphous and no one really knows. And I think trust is kind of built between individuals versus kind of these like larger institutions. Mm-hmm. I believe the children are our future. Teach them well and let them need the world. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. Well, that was definitely an interesting first show in the studio. So yeah. I appreciate uh, you all being being here today. Wow. Mm. Thank you. Gratitude for both of you as well. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Without further ado, like, subscribe, or it wouldn't be without further ado. Anyway, play us out, Jacques. <laughs> oh, that's actually oh a pop. <laughs> it's like our sitcom transition. Yeah. Sound, you know what I mean? It's like Trey's return. Yeah. No, it's like, it's like Trey's return. It's like... To the New York Twist. <laughs>